This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. We're like 40 episodes in. You guys know how this goes at this point. <laughs> you know the drill. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here with our buddy, Josh Churlick, CEO of Well Data Labs. What's up, man? Hey, how are you guys doing? Doing good, man. So I'm excited about this one because my good buddy, Jim Thorson, has been telling me about you for a long time. Every time I'm up in Denver, he's like, man, you got to link up with Josh from Well Data Labs and met a lot of people from the team. So it's nice to meet you in the flesh. Yeah. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I listen to your podcast. Love it. Awesome. Jim, Jim's a good, big advocate. Man, so also got to, I got to make a comment on your Well Data Labs shirt. Next time you come, you got to bring me one because it's like this Jurassic Park theme logo of Well Data Labs and I dig it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We do. Every year we do a t-shirt contest. So internally we custom design shirts, pick a winner, and then send it to somebody who can actually design and make, <laughs> <laughs> and make a cool shirt. So yeah, you can drop by the office. We'll that's, give them or we'll send you one. That's awesome, yeah. man. So tell us a little bit about what Well Data Labs does. Well Data Labs is a software as a service application to unsuck frack data. So basically operators buy our application to better collect field data operations, field data from field operations to contextualize, characterize, and analyze the time series one second frack data. And it's something that is super fast and easy to use and then integrate that with their back office systems for data science and other analytics. Okay. Awesome. You've got your elevator pitched down, man. I got to tell you. Oh, yeah. I've been doing it a while. <laughs> so you guys are based out of Denver, right? We are. Yeah. Yeah. We were just talking, you know, Jim Thorson puts on a great event up in Jim Thorson and a group of people put on Energy Tech Showcase. And you were telling us that you were involved in the event scene there for a while. So you had the, uh, what was it? Was it the, what was the week? The oh week yeah. So event? like long story, I, short story long is I founded Denver Founders Network in 2005. And that was one of the first meetups in Colorado to uh, take serial entrepreneurs and do an interview Q and A style like you guys do. We did that for 10 years. It's still running. I retired, but a bunch of us meetups banded together in like 2011 with the city of Denver and co-founded. I was a co-founder. We did, we founded Denver Startup Week which was focused on bringing all of the startup knowledge together, putting on hundreds of events and transferring knowledge around how to build startups, how to grow startups. And the main focus was to put Denver on the map so that large tech companies would begin moving to Denver and it would grow our technology ecosystem. Wow. Uh, and mission achieved, like Slack. Yeah. As I said, that, that worked pretty yeah. pretty well. <laughs> and what's really fascinating is when you meet the people from Slack or, or Gusto, they said they moved to Denver because of Denver Startup Week. Oh, wow. So you're like, that's, that's awesome to have that much of an impact on an ecosystem. It's fun, right? And so I retired because I was doing that for all, all free. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I had to focus on Well Data Labs. So, okay, let's, let's kind of rewind it back. So you started the Denver Founders Network in 2005 doing these events. Were you in the oil and gas industry at that point? I was. My uh, first job in oil and gas was a contract lease analyst in 2005. Okay. Yeah. So I'm a serial entrepreneur in tech. I've been building tech since I graduated from NC State in the, you know, whenever 2000 or so. And so I've, I've always been a serial entrepreneur building web applications. And then I fell into oil and gas after earning an MBA at UCD because, you know, when you're building startup products, you still need to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. And mo most of us like, you know, are building products before we've achieved anything in life. So, you know, I was using oil and gas as a way to pay the mortgage and then fell in love with the industry. So you graduated from NC State. How did you get involved in the oil and gas industry? 
I moved to Denver uh, okay. for a graduate degree. And when I graduated with an MBA and again was working on at that time as an enterprise retail product, mm-hmm. I needed needed a job and oil industry was hiring and a buddy of mine was in the industry and got me a job. I was willing to do anything. So I was like file clerking in the morning and then meeting with C-level retail executives in the afternoon. Yeah, so I was, I was, It was really funny. Like I'd be file clerking and it would change into a suit and go meet with <laughs> go meet I, C-level retail. I love it. I've literally, I literally did the exact same thing there. Like in between GDS wear and, and while I was working on WellHub, I was like, I got to pay the bills. This is just an idea at this time. So I was like personal training in the morning and then meeting with people in the afternoon and building a product at night. It's paralleling. That's how you yeah. get started as a founder. It's yeah. tough. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, similar story, me being out in the field, I'd be wearing coveralls, you know, one day and the next day I'm meeting with some executives trying to, you know, not pretend that I am more than what I am, but just trying to not be the, Fit, you know, just, you gotta, the yeah. just the field hand, you know? So you got to like kind of live that double life sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, but, but that's character building, right? Like when you're, you know, the, not all these ideas are worth, like not every idea you start is worth growing. And so, mm-hmm. and you've got to have a way of paralleling and testing them and, and that's how you do it. So Will Little Labs has been around, what, five years now? Yeah, 2014, May, June 2014 is when we started. Okay. So what did you do between 2005 and 2014? So I worked uh, in the industry and I ended up started in one a small company that was doing Bakken work. And then they sold their assets to PDC Energy. Mm-hmm. And I ended up over at PDC Energy for a number of years. And I, I worked around the company as you know a contract analyst or, you know, and then worked my way up. Actually ended up as an employee working for the CEO and doing a lot of the board work, a lot of the operational analytics, and kind of getting an overview of an operator's world. Mm-hmm. And that was really fun. But as a founder, it's like I told my wife on our second date, I said, I'm an entrepreneur. She said, what does that mean? I said, it means I'll quit good jobs to go work on ideas that everybody <laughs> thinks is crazy. And won't get paid for them. <laughs> it means on the surface, I don't look very intelligent because I, I leave some pretty good situations. Yeah. And that, that's really, like, PC has in a great situation. It's an amazing company, but I just had that itch to go back and found something. Yeah. And they hired me a bond back as a contractor to kind of work on some business intelligence projects. And I was consulting there and working on some enterprise retail stuff. So how did you come across the need or the idea for World Data Labs? Because you're working as a contract analysis and or analyst and, and doing some of these jobs. Were you really exposed to frac data and some of the issues that they were dealing with in that time? You know, honestly, the way I founded the idea was, so I had left, I was consulting at PC at this point in the IT department and helping them on business intelligence, some data warehousing projects, and really just kind of helping apply a little bit of agile thinking and customer discovery internally. And because I had trust with the engineering department, we were able to get projects moved. But in that, I noticed we were working on production and we were working on drilling. And it was like the frac data was sitting in the corner and getting dusty. And it's like, well, why is that? And it's, well, it's because it's all locked up in 300-page PDFs Mm -hmm. and really crappy CSV files. So I didn't actually work on it at PDC. I started looking in the market for oil and gas ideas because I noticed that all of my peers in oil and gas were now decision makers. And that felt like an opportune moment in the industry where you could now sell new technology into the industry, right? There was that crew change and, Mm -hmm. you know, guys our age now had budget authority. Yeah. And they were going to buy software they wanted, not the legacy stuff. Yeah. And so really, we, we took three ideas, went out to the market, and we did arm's length customer discovery. You know, you don't talk to your friends when you have an idea. They lie to you. They want you to be happy, right? And mm-hmm. so you go talk to people you don't know, and you figure out what the real problems are. And frac data was one of the problems we were discussing with individuals, and it rose to the top as being a problem that was pretty big that had a lot of dollars attached to it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it's a pretty common theme that it's well understood that oil and gas just has data problems across the board, but I could definitely see this with fried data, especially, you know, in the last 10 years, we're just kind of running and gunning yeah. with, with fright jobs and, you know, you're, you're gaining all this data and all this insight, but like you said, it gets locked away on some engineer's computer stored in a PDF or an Excel spreadsheet and they can never properly utilize that data. So yeah, it gets locked up. We also had, we had a high, you know, really high growth in the industry due to commodity prices along with massive technology change. Mm-hmm. And because of, because of the economics, we weren't stopping to kind of improve the data collection. We didn't really have to, mm-hmm. we could just go. Yeah. And so when things, when things slowed down and we hit that downturn, then we had to get more efficient and we, we looked at our data we were spending a couple million dollars on, and we're like, wow, we can't even use this. Yeah. And what we really figured out is the top 5% of thinkers in frack were using that data every day, and they were struggling with it. So we basically made an application that made their lives easier and essentially democratized the use of this detailed frack data down to everybody in the industry. Can you give us any insight into what kind of data is captured from a frack job? You know, just kind of high level. You don't have to get into the weeds, but. Yeah, I mean, a typical process is as you're, as you're pumping a stage, there's data hacking going on, just like any other function in the industry. All the sensors, the PLCs recording data. Mm-hmm. There's calculated channels that are being added to that, that data set. And that date, so it's, you know, pressure data, slurry rate, concentrations, all of that data is collected by various systems across the industry that aren't even usually consistent crew to crew in the same company. Mm -hmm. And then you have the human recorded data element. So you'll have this meter data, and then you have a human that's writing down like nearly the same data into a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. And then you have another human, typically a frac consultant or a company man, writing down the exact same data into another spreadsheet. And then all of this kind of ends up somewhere in the operator's world. Mm-hmm. And what you end up with is you end up with a bunch of data that was recorded different, at different times. It should be the same data that's all slightly different. Yeah. And you just have to pick a winner with gut. Yeah. And so we basically built an application that fit the process and said, let's take all that data, let's import it, let's normalize it, let's map it. So you can compare the well you did a month ago to the well you're doing now even if you have a different service company. Mm-hmm. And then let's start extracting all of those human recorded elements out of the meter and saying, hey guy, maybe you don't need to like record that same PSI that's already right and it's right here. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and then let's build a bunch of APIs around this so that the industry can integrate around it and the data can go where it needs to go. Gotcha. Um, so that's really what we focused on and it's much harder battle than, than you would think when you start. That's the worst when you're on any type of operation out in the field and you have three recordings of a piece of data and there's discrepancies between all three. And then, I mean, it can happen on stuff as simple as a pipe tally. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, hey, I've got 10,120 feet. You've got 10,125 feet, you know, and then all of a sudden you're kind of chasing a, a rabbit around trying to figure out what's what's the right piece of information so i could see that happening on some complex operation like a frag job and more often than not like guys just negotiate a number right yeah <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so, so your number let's, <laughs> let's split down the middle let's and call it, it even <laughs> that's what happens right <laughs> absolutely absolutely so when you got the idea for world data labs how did you go about actually you know bringing this idea to life you know whether it was building it did you bring on a team of co-founders are you the technical guy that can actually go in there and build it from the development standpoint 
How did you guys go about that? I'm not a, I'm not a technical co-founder. I, early in my career, I spent some time learning to write code and it took me like four days to make a, a like a little bouncing ball. And I thought <laughs> it was not my expertise, but I know how to talk to people Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I knew how to design product. Yeah. So I had found a technical co-founder who I'd known for a few years in the Denver ecosystem. And we, we knew we wanted to team up and do something together. And we, we, we teamed up and started working on the idea. So what I do is I'm, I'm really good. I knew that I knew the industry. I know how to design product and then he he was very good at product design and he knew how to I- implement the code and so we collaborated together and just got out in the market so i find this really interesting you found him through the ecosystem of mm-hmm. denver obviously you were very active in the startup scene there in denver you know jake and i kind of refer to this as hosting the party and if you're hosting the party and you kind of put yourself at the center of whatever's happening. So in your case at Denver, the Denver the tech startup, startup scene, and yeah, Denver, Denver Founders yeah. Network. So, yeah, yeah. you know, you start getting net- networks and relationships with all these guys that are in there. And so when the time came to build a product, you had a guy that you knew because you yeah. were hosting, essentially you were hosting these parties and becoming friends with everyone. We had drank one beer a month together for six years. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, and like, like relationships like this for co-founders are, are things that are built over time, usually not on a whim. Yeah. And it's that, that I always use the story, like be a line, not a dot. So if you go to a lot of networking events, you're a line in somebody's mind mm-hmm. and they start to get to know you and feel like they know you, even though they really don't, you only drink one beer a month at a networking event. Yeah. Right. But if you show up to an event once every two years, like nobody gives a crap. They don't know who you are. Mm-hmm. But if you show up regularly, you're part of the thread of the, the fabric. You're Absolutely. part of the fabric of the ecosystem. That's what, you know, I think people try to get an idea. Like they'll come up with an idea and they're like, oh, I need to find a co-founder, but they haven't been networking they that entire time. And so you go, you go to pick that co-founder and you're not going to be successful in picking one. But you know, that's six years in your case yep. of having a relationship with that guy. And then knowing at that time, hey, this this is the guy that I need. So, and even then, we still reference check to each other, right? Like when you go to your <laughs> co-founder, like go talk to who they worked with, what are they like, you know? Um, I've made bad early on in my career. I made bad co-founder decisions on ideas, and it's really like this stuff didn't used to be on blogs. Nobody used to podcast about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and. There are a lot of techniques you can do now where you start out and you do like founder collaboration agreements and it just spells out what you're doing, what you're contributing and, and when does this idea become a company? Yeah. And there, yeah. there are techniques as a founder you can do that, that give you a lot of a good defendable position to protect your ideas, but test out co-founders. Yep. Absolutely. So when you guys decided to team up, start building this out, I'm assuming that you guys probably built out an MVP, a framework of what you were thinking and then yep. took that to get it piloted. How did you guys go about the the process of getting your first client? You're based in Denver. Did you focus on operators up in that area or did you go down to the Permian? What was y'all's uh, go-to-market strategy? Yeah. So even taking a step back on your, the way we built product is we went out and we, you know, use customer discovery, go and talk, figure out what the problems are. I would distill those into mock-ups, wireframes mm-hmm. that look like real product. We go back and talk to customers and say, does this solve your problem? And once we kind of had that boxed in, then we started writing code. And we wrote a prototype and started showing that to the market and getting feedback. How valuable was that process for you guys? Incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, we're just still building features today that were mocked up a couple of years ago that we just haven't gotten to. Wow. And, but that process enabled us to kind of get feedback from customers in the lowest cost way possible. Mm-hmm. And again, we talked to people we didn't know. I just asked, you know, we were just 
getting out there in the market and talking to people. We stayed local to Denver because Denver had a nice oil and gas ecosystem and the great DJ Basin right there had mm-hmm. a lot of operators. So we didn't have to travel to Houston for two years. We were able to build a product that fit the general needs of the industry while keeping our cost and travel time down. Yeah, you're right there operating in the backyard. So no, no need to travel back and forth between Texas and Colorado. Right. I got that. I told you earlier, I had that sweaty windowless office in downtown and we got it right in downtown so that we could hop out and walk down the street to all of our customers. Yeah. So we were talking before we turned on the microphones and started recording. We were laughing at our setup here for the podcast because, you know, our, our lighting solution is we've got a lamp from Target sitting on top of a chair providing our, our lighting for the uh, video. And that we stole from the common area of the yeah, cannon. Yeah, and we stole the chair from the common area of the cannon, so we didn't even pay for that chair. Even but, uh, better, capital, that's capital efficiency. Yeah, yeah, look, when you're bootstrapped, you figure out ways to do things. But Josh was uh, talking about how you appreciate those days, you know, when, when you move forward in the future and you look back on them and it's kind of nostalgic to it's think no- about it. It's nostalgic. We raised our seed round in January 15, right before okay. we had our first customer. I'll mention that in a minute. Yeah. And so closed seed round and I got up on LinkedIn and Twitter and said, Hey, looking for free office furniture. <laughs> and I got a note from our, our, our seed investor and he's like, you're the first founder I've invested in that has money and is looking for free furniture. <laughs> it's like, I literally just cut you guys a check. <laughs> literally cut it. I'm sure he loved that though. <laughs> he loved it. He tells the story to this day all the time. And, 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 it, and what I said is like, the money was to grow the business and prove out the business. The money wasn't to buy desks. Yeah, right. at that, that point in time, it was two of us. We'd work on the floor. Yeah, like I said, you can go get you a folding table from Walmart, you yeah. know, and a couple of chairs, and you're yeah. good. <laughs> and you're good, and and that's what a lot of entrepreneurs they try to go like too fancy, too quick, right? And you gotta mm. you gotta grind it out and build a good business. Absolutely. Know. So our first customer actually was PDC Energy. Oh, okay. And uh, we went back and ended up selling our first product to them, even though we developed it in the market without their assistance initially. Mm-hmm. And and we went back and had to sell in an arm's length relationship because everybody I knew was no longer the frontline engineers. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it was a it was a really good like I had experience and knew the organization, but we had to sell to people that didn't know me and had never worked with me. And that gave us an arm's length first sale. And honestly the way it went is I said, guys, we they were like, that solves a problem. And I said, we agreed, we signed a contract, agreed to a price. And I said they're like, well, we're not ready to pay for this yet. We don't think it's valuable. And I said, how about this? Like, we'll get all the terms worked out and I'll call you every month and I'll ask you if it's valuable enough for you to pay us. And then we will work with you day in, day out, and we'll continue to build the product. And so we were releasing product daily, yeah, working with them and working with other customers. And it took three months in where finally that email that says you're getting enough value that they start yeah, we start paying you now. <laughs> they start paying and they, they started I'm sure that was a good email for you guys. I saved it. I saved it. Yeah. Uh, it's really fun. That's a nostalgic item, right? Yeah. But, absolutely. But we were able to build with them with a contract and understanding of the price and the value in place. And then once they started receiving the value they thought it was worth, they started, you know, paying us as a software as a service and they've been a customer now. They're still a customer now expanding awesome. our new products. Very good. And how, so how would that, would that, so you guys were kind of, well, I think you guys were kind of first in class in what you do, right? Especially with Frack Data. Yep. So how'd you, what was your process of going through and determining what that value was to the operator and then subsequently setting your price? Obviously, you know, as founders, there's a lot of going back and forth and figuring it out, especially with the first few customers of like, what, you know, how do we charge them? You know, what does the licensing fees look like? Yeah. What was your process for 
for that? Was it just a lot of trial and error? So first pricing out of the gate as a startup, it's like my, the math, the method I use is, you know, you don't have any traction. Nobody believes you about anything. Mm-hmm. It's just a price and something that you think if you charge that customer that price forever, that you would not end up in an upside down scenario. That customer mm-hmm. might not have the highest profit margin, but you're not going to be losing money on them two to three years out. Yeah. So pick that price and don't worry about optimizing yet, right? You're trying to build a product that somebody cares about. Mm-hmm. You can optimize price a little bit later, which we've done, but PDC still still on that early access pricing for where they started on that product. Oh, very and, cool. <laughs> and it's because I, you know, in a handshake and a contract, I said, guys, like we're going to, we're, you know, we're, I'm not going to come back and raise this on you in six months. Like in three to four years, we'll, we can look at this. And that's what we did. Have you done any other uh, just like flexible deals throughout your career? I mean, that's, that's pretty creative, right? The deal we did yeah, is yeah. correct. You know, I have, but. Yeah, I, I just think you have to kind of get creative to build trust. And yeah. part of the way you build trust is by saying, this is where we're going, but I'm going to leave a little bit of skin in the game to know that I'm not trying to take you, right? I mean, those early stage guys are kind of taking a bet on you, right? Yeah, they're, big assume, bet. they're assuming some risk and working with you. So it's kind of a partnership. At that they're point. not a small business, right? Like these are people that have that are going to work their career at that company that are taking mm-hmm. a personal capital bet on trying you, right? Yeah, exactly. And if they make a mistake, like, and unfortunately, in the oil field, mistakes and decisions like that can hang with somebody in, in their career. Forever. Right? And yeah. so you've got to remember, you've got to think about that. Absolutely. Like this guy's putting, a, this guy, this guy's putting a lot on the line. We need to deliver for them so that they're a hero. It's probably a, the best piece of advice for anyone that's listening to this because I think that that's one of the main contributors to the slow adoption rate of new technologies in oil and gas is that there's so much risk on the line, not necessarily for the EMP or mm-hmm. the company, but for the personnel within that company, because right. if they make a bad decision, you know, they could lose their job. And not only that, it sticks with them. And, you know, in today's climate, it's not easy to just go out and find another job either. No. So it'll stick, it'll hang on their neck, right? Three, four years later, five years later, people remember, you remember that thing you did? It didn't work, right? Yeah. You make bad decisions. This You have no say here. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yep, exactly. So you guys started this in like mid 2014. Obviously, yep. we know downturn mm-hmm. hits in 2014. Did you guys kind of get a little, did you get a little shaky during those times thinking that it might be hard to sell these companies new technologies while they're focused on lower commodity prices? Or did you guys see that as an advantage that oil companies would start taking an internal look at how can we become more efficient? At the time, I didn't even think about it because I feel, I realized we had a problem that had to be solved and we were going to be the ones to solve it. Mm -hmm. And and we were, we were working through it. So we, it was funny, like we, when we got our term sheet for our seed round back in uh, around Thanksgiving 2014, Commodity prices took a big dip right then. And we got a note from the one and only Jim Thorson. And he had said, hey, unfortunately, due to the recent price change in oil, dot, 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 dot. No, we're just kidding. We're still doing the round. <laughs> that's like true. That's true gym fashion. And you like, you can like imagine that. me, right? Like having a freaking heart attack. And uh, But then when does that happen? I'm like, okay, I've got culture fit here with my investor. Like the, yeah. who the hell does that? That's incredible. Yeah. And, that's, uh, that's such typical fashion for Jim sending an email like that. I could yeah. see him doing that a hundred percent. And so that's the kind of thing. So we were able to raise that seed round, which kept us from having, we were we were going to go as consultants. We had saved up a couple years years of ability to run, and so we were going full time anyway. Yeah. But the seed round really helped us with hiring and scaling and flexibility. Awesome. And, and the way I look at capital early is you can bootstrap or you can raise money, but the money gives you a little bit of gas pedal. Yeah. And an ability to not be hand to mouth. So yeah. you can make a little bit more mistakes. You can feel a little bit more comfortable, and then if you need to hit a hit a timing on a hole. 
you have the capital to hire somebody and hit that timing. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I mean, a big question for founders obviously is when do we take capital? Do we keep bootstrapping, et cetera, et cetera? And I've always looked at at it like you take capital, you take on capital when you're at a point of scaling and mm-hmm. capturing market share. That way, you can like really you know get on the gas. Whether it's hiring people out, doing something on biz dev, marketing, whatever it may be, building out. So you know, usually helps to start the fire first before you pour gasoline on it, right? Yeah, I still I think like have you, Jake, you were mentioning what you've done the paralleling. I've done the mm-hmm. paralleling. It's really tough to kind of move the needle. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, seed capital, when you if you can get it on a prototype, gives you kind of that breathing room to do good work mm-hmm. and hire good people. But that's my point of view. Also having like bootstrapped another enterprise product. And it's just really tough to bootstrap products that have to sell into enterprise. Yeah. Because the sales are, it's six to 18 month the, sales, the sales cycles. sales cycles are so long, so you, long that you can dry up waiting for a sell to go through. Yeah, and, absolutely. And you get it wrong. When we took our first prototype to market, we had talked to 40 people and built a product they needed. Our first customer was like, who had been part of that. Some of those guys have been part of the later pool. Yeah. We're like, we need this at a different, this graph has to work totally differently. So we had to rebuild our product that we took them to market the week after the first week we took it to market. We, yeah. just, we just rebuilt the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, That's gotta be pretty frustrating to say. <laughs> Not really. It is. It's the way it is. Like customer discovery is an imperfect way. Yeah. And like, but you've got to have this vision of where you're going and the customers tell you how to build the stairs to get there. Yeah. But they don't always know what stairs they want. They, right. Sometimes there's this. That's the thing that customers don't always necessarily know what they no. want. Right. So you, it's an art. Yeah, you have to kind of you have to take their feedback with a grain of salt too. You need their feedback to build it, but at the same time, understand that they may not necessarily know what they want because the solution hasn't existed up to this point. So right, right, and they're comparing you to this thing over here, and it doesn't exist. Yeah, I don't know. I think I've talked about this on the podcast, but the book Outliers, and they talk about that like. Facebook or any of these innovative technologies that have come to fruition in the last decade, you know, it's one thing to always take customer feedback and build something, but the, the end user doesn't always know what they want. And mm-hmm. so it has to be up to the the company or the tech startup to push those boundaries and bring new solutions and innovations. And a lot of times humans don't like change. And so there might be a lot of resistance at first, but then yeah. over time, if it's a good product, people will start coming to it and being like, oh, hey, this actually makes life easier. Yeah, change so, is very unnatural. Like people are you know, very resistant to it. And especially it's a, in oil and gas. <laughs> you know, yeah, oil and gas, we, we always, we're very localized to it, right? But if you go to other industries, they have the same problem. Like, yeah. You know, it's, they have data problems, change problems. Like there's a reason Accenture and, and McKinsey all focus on change management, right? Because yeah. no, nobody knows how to change. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, but we, we're localized to it and we have our own, own uh, industry problems that kind of maybe exasperated a little bit. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So how many, you guys are at 38 people? Yeah, 38 people. Yeah. Man, it's becoming a big operation now. I don't know if, I don't even know if you're a fit for the oil and gas startups. I don't know hey, if I we, consider you a startup it, anymore. It, it, yeah, right. enterprises. Yeah, yeah. Or it's a, well, it's a, I think sometimes at some point you, you have to remember it's just a frame of thought, right? Yeah, too. absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, we were 16 people this time last year. Wow. And we've just been on a, on a kind of growth tear. So let's talk about let's talk about that a little bit because growing the team's always complicated, right? It's hard to, you know, especially in the early stages of a startup, you know, a couple bad hires can make or break you. So when you guys started hiring and you took that seed funding in 2015 yep. did you guys use the majority of that capital to deploy into building the team we did over time right so we yeah. made 
our first hire was a petroleum engineer to help us with support part time. Okay. So we, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a petroleum engineer by trade, right? Yeah. I'm more of a software guy that understood operator side of the world. Yeah. And then my co-founder was a, a really good technical guy. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we did was bring a petroleum engineer to help us with support and thinking about what we were building. And so did you guys have him like interfacing with EMPs that you were working with to kind of be able to speak their language on a technical level? Is that what? No, I can handle that pretty well. Okay. And okay. so I and so I did most of that. But gotcha. he he was kind of initially was you know just thought checking what we were building because like hey is this something crazy these tech guys dreamed up that has no relevance yeah. <laughs> yeah. and so he was we were bouncing it off him internally and then okay. he was actually writing our support documentation cool. so that a petroleum engineer would uh, that so it was relevant to our users got you and then he actually went on to found a brewery or oh, no, nice. a distillery and a couple months in and we hired an, uh, one of our other uh, josh Merritt's on our team he's been with us since mid 2015 and yeah he was our petroleum engineer that started out as support and just making sure that we were really close to our customer base. Very cool. Yeah. And then, you know, what are, what are some of the other challenges of scaling an operation, you know, so quickly? I mean, essentially doubling your, your staff in a year. I'm sure that comes with a lot of challenges. It does. Well, you know, get it, hiring people that fit your culture. There's a lot of people that fit the talent or skills you're looking for, but culture is really important. Is that the main driver? For you, for me, it's for the main driver. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you have like a, a list of requirements or a process that you go through to to really find out if they're a cultural fit? You know, a series of team interviews and good screen, good phone screening up front. And mm-hmm. we have to we're a SaaS application in oil and gas, right? So I have to hire people that know SaaS applications and teach them oil and gas. Mm-hmm. And then I hire oil and gas people and I have to teach them SaaS, right? So we yeah. actually have a well internal Welday Labs University to do both of those. <laughs> Very and, cool. and teach people how to do it. But yeah, a lot of times it just comes down to a series of interviews and tests to see how they work in terms of having them show us how they work and, and figuring out like, are they intellectually curious? And we hire for kind. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it, it sucks to work with, you know, not nice people. I don't know. I cuss a lot. I'm having no, you can say, no, no, no. I <laughs> cuss all the time on the show. Yeah. <laughs> it sucks to work with assholes. You say assholes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is going to be the cleanest interview I've ever done. <laughs> I've, been, I've been filtering out. It's funny. Uh, on the uh, Pump Jack Power, Wayland's like, did you just say shit on the podcast? I was like, say whatever I want, man. It's my podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, I have a, yeah, I have an unfiltered mouth sometimes. And, but yeah, so we, you know, we, we have to hire for that. And, you know, that's the struggle with our struggle when we hire hire oil field people it's like getting the getting the folks in that have the knowledge but then fit the culture yeah and then the other side of really growing a business as fast as ours is it's a new company every six months yeah and a lot of people that change in your job where your job was one thing and then six months later it's totally different being able to stay fluid and and what your responsibilities are is it's hard right most you know and most people in a normal company you go to it's not growing at that kind of 4x rate yeah. So that it's, so your job changes over four years, not three months. Yeah, right? exactly. And so yeah. That, that's a really big challenge. And you just have to hire high, highly capable, smart people and let them go. Yeah. For, you know, obviously we don't have as many employees as you guys, but I always think about the cultural aspect, the culture fit. And for me, I, you could have a person that's a 10 on ability and mm-hmm. skills. And then you could have a person that's a seven on that same skill, but the person that's seven is a perfect cultural fit. The person that's a 10, you know, maybe they're an asshole. Maybe they're not a, a nice person to work with. Yeah. I'd rather take that seven yeah. that, that's a better cultural fit and that'll work within the team well, you know, be a, a good integral part of the machine. Yeah, that person that can't participate in the in the company or the machine, 
they actually break everything, right? So even though you hired the best person, everything slows down. Exactly. Yeah. And it's hard to get over that thinking sometimes too, especially if you're just looking at like a resume at, at face value, you know, like, well, this person's way more skilled, but it's not a cultural fit. And yeah. sometimes you don't want to look stupid, you know, by bypass or passing over that person that was obviously had the skill set. And you, you have to, you have to be patient and let good people go by because you didn't think they fit your culture. Mm-hmm. And then you, that obviously creates stress in the org because you need extra people, Yeah, but you've got to get the culture right. And so that's a, that's a thing we focused on really well. And, you know, we've won best place to work in Denver the last two years. Oh, and nice. That's been incredible. And, you know, that's all based to how our employees anonymously rate their jobs. And oh, cool. So that's super cool. Yeah. And it's a really good indicator. We're doing the right things. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, if you have a good cultural fit and you're, you know, Denver's not a bad place to work either. So yeah, yeah. you find a, a good job like at World Data Labs, just, you know, working with some cool people like Josh. I mean, we're always, we're, we're always hiring. And if there's not a job, email us anyway, because it's probably just not posted. Man, yet. you know what? We actually, <laughs> we just got a, a message from one of our friends, founder. He was on the podcast and he messaged us this morning and he's like, hey, I just found out that one of our top employees found us from the podcast episode that we did Amazing. He, said he left his his big company cush job to join us because of that podcast so several people have found jobs from this podcast so yeah find josh if you're looking for something he's a pretty cool dude make sure you get some free t-shirts i'm gonna be begging him for one after the show so <laughs> i'll give you some we got some i heart fracking stickers around nice I'll, I'll leave some for you guys. <laughs> nice. so i gotta ask you man you know obviously a lot of political news around uh, oil and gas up in the Colorado area. You know, what's the sentiment up there for the uh, industry? You know, what, what's everyone kind of thinking? Is it doom or gloom? Or You know, it, we in Colorado, we've been living through this for a while. I actually live in kind of Broomfield, which is the epicenter for, you know, fracking. Okay. And the anti-fracking movement there. Yeah. It's, it edges up against Boulder and it's in Weld, which is where the oil fields are. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't know. I was on a commute a couple, like last year, I was on a commuting home with my wife and her coworker. And the coworker goes, they're fracking my house. And I'm like, oh no, <laughs> like, this is going to be a long ride home. Yeah. <laughs> and I was talking to her and I'm like, look, they're not fracking your house and this is how it works. And she's like, okay. Hydrocarbons out of your house. <laughs> she, she's like, I totally understand it now. And I believe you. She's like, you're never going to be able to explain that to anybody like me. Yeah. Because I don't really want to listen to the science. And, I, and that, I mean, the industry just had, we just have a struggle. Like it, they're fracking my house. Is much more catchy than, you know, we're actually the laterals or several thousand feet under the ground, right? Yeah, nobody cares. I, I was talking about this on the panel the other day. It was the uh, Society of Professional Women in Petroleum and speaking at it. And we we're talking about image for the industry mm-hmm. to outsiders. And I was telling them about how a big driver for our podcast was to shine a light on all the good things that happen within the industry and educate people. And that's a problem with people outside the industry is that they don't understand the science behind drilling or fracking. Yep. And, you know, I think that it's actually a pretty simple concept to understand when you have someone knowledgeable explain it. Yep. But it's just a, it's a lack of information exchange. They also don't understand that, you know, without oil and gas or even mining, like none of the technology that we're using. To, that <laughs> my, we're using my, my favorite is when someone's on Twitter bitching about oil and gas right. and I'm like the phone that you're using and everything in between. None of this works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, so in Colorado, we just have, you know, there's going to be that debate, the legislature, the governor changed, you know, they've, they've made it harder, but there's a lot of permits there. The industry has a pretty good runway. We haven't seen that much impact in our customers in terms of them slowing down. That's good. But at the end of the day, like these kinds, like this is my point of view, my point of view, these regulatory stresses on the industry can be met with, we have a 
an industry that has capital, has smart money, has smart people and money, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. eventually technology will solve the will will solve the problems that regulations present. Mm-hmm. And it, it'll work harmoniously in the long run. Yeah. It just it's like you know, get going to the dentist right now, you're like, I don't really want to deal with this. Yeah. But, uh, absolutely. But in the long run, technology and smart people and capital. Yeah. You know, solve these problems. Solve all the problems. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think that we're seeing a focus of capital and smart people, you know, coming into the industry to look to solve these problems. So I agree with you 100%. That, that's there. why I build product in the industry is I've built product in retail, small business. And, you know, not everybody you talk to is, you know, wicked smart, right? And mm-hmm. in this industry, for the most part, there's problems that have capital to solve, to pay to solve the problems. And everybody you talk to is, you know, way smarter than I am. I'm just trying to keep up. <laughs> and and, uh, and that, that really makes it a really fun place to do, to, to innovate. Yeah. We were uh, actually on the, this morning I was in the car with one of our interns, Samir, and he's from Boston. And I was just talking about, you know, the feet that we've, I said, you know, drilling horizontal wells is a pretty good feat in physics. I mean, this is a very complex thing that we've done. And he's like, man, leave it to the people of the South to figure out how to do this. <laughs> and I said, man, the oil plate, the oil field is just one place that would blow your mind about how many just incredibly smart and intelligent people are in this industry. You know, whether they, they're born and raised, I mean, you can go out and it drives me crazy. I can talk about people in West Texas cause I'm from West Texas. So those are my people, but like you can get like some, you know, just Billy Bob out there in the field mm-hmm. missing his teeth. But man, you start talking about downhole physics, this dude knows his yeah, shit, yeah, you yeah. know, I mean, only guy that you can talk to that's missing teeth. And if you've ever spent some time around like real rednecks, like they are the most crafty people. They can, <laughs> like you ever seen rednecks with paychecks? They like craft these monster trucks out of like nothing. And you give you a redneck, you give a redneck some money. He'll figure out how to build some cool shit. Man, so. so they apply to the right things here in the oil industry and you just do all sorts of it. Yeah, and then you know? take that up to the software level and, you know, we're seeing, you know, people outside the industry where they have new emerging technology that they mm-hmm. think can be applied to oil and gas and, you know, I'm kind of starting to change my stance on this a little bit because used to, I would say it's not going to be the people outside the industry that come in and solve the problems. Mm-hmm. But recently we've met some really great people like Rachel from GeoSite, extremely yeah. intelligent, you know, but extremely humble and mm-hmm. coming in the industry and learning oil and gas from the bottom up, you know, just wanting to learn as much as they can. Corvid, and Corvid, so Ryan Dawson with Corbett did the same thing. I mean, if you guys want to go back and listen to that episode, yeah. just to kind of recap, Ryan came from a tech mm-hmm. background, you know, he's a developer. But the same thing that him and Rachel did was that they surrounded themselves with people in the industry, mm-hmm. people who were truly from the industry, mm-hmm. so that they could be essentially mentors to them. And I mean, you right. took the same kind of the same path, Josh, right. by right. getting the, you know, having in the early stages, the petroleum engineers to kind of advise you and be like, hey, are we just a couple of, you know, are we doing some crazy shit on the software side or is this actually applicable to the problems that the industry's yeah, having? Yeah, does it fit? You have to understand, like, who are the users that you're solving the problem for, right? And if you're out in the field, you have to build the soft- software one way. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's you know, really you the comfort level of that user with technology. You can't assume they're just going to change to kind of the future. You've got to kind of lead them along, which is what's yeah. great. You mentioned Rachel and Brian, like they both have great companies, great founders mm-hmm. doing really cool, cool things. Right. Yeah. But it's that blend of like bringing that. I've learned technology. You, you did not learn SaaS technology and oil and gas. Yeah. So you learned it somewhere else. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you've got to come in and you've got to bring and you've got to understand that you don't have you've got to be you know, humble and figure out how to wrap yourself with the knowledge. But yeah. in the same point, you've got to test the industry to move forward, right? Yeah. Like I told somebody the other day they wanted us to, you know, we're streaming to an FTP site and we're doing this. And I said, hey, we're not going to do that, guys. Like you can expose an API. We've got APIs on everything. 
and we're building an ecosystem. I said, we're moving forward, not backwards. Yep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Eyes forward, we're not going to regress and move backwards. I'm like, I'm like we're going forward. Yeah. I'm like, Here, here's API specs right to this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, and then you'll be in the you know, our century. Yeah. Yeah. Some companies in the space for API and they don't even know what you're talking about. So it's like kind of, it's, it's they're like the API well number. <laughs> well, but that's fair, right? Because it's, you know, it's, they, you know, we, we, in every conversation, we have to explain the difference between American Petroleum Institute and application <laughs> interfaces and but what's fun is like when uh, we were in a meeting a year and a half ago and a dude was in the corner and by the end of our demo he had coded up against our public api for the for sample data set yeah and he was like hey i've got this data and it's porting into some legacy software and like in the demo and i'm like oh man the oil and gas industry is changing like that's incredible yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're like man that's fucking awesome <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, and, and that, that kind of gives me hope right because like that's going to let all these softwares kind of integrate and talk and, yeah and get, get us into the future yeah uh, it's and that's, cool. i think that's when we really start seeing the value of technology is when you know everything's working in unison because you know right now still even up to this point everything's really still fragmented right so when we're able to have these end-to-end solutions that are compiled with different technologies i think that's when the industry's really going to benefit yeah plug and play a little bit right like in the tech world we see salesforce and you can stand up you guys familiar with salesforce yeah, yeah. so you stand up salesforce right it's not the best at everything but it does everything mm-hmm. and if you don't you know for instance like their email platform you can go and buy Yesware, go buy MailChimp, and mm-hmm. the APIs just communicate. Everything's done. Right? Yep. You just turn it on as a customer, and it more or less just works with yep. a little bit of tuning. Yep. And I, that's kind of my vision for the oil industry is I think we can get our applications to work more, a lot more like they do in other industries, mm-hmm. where even though things overlap a little bit, they should plug and play a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So. I think that's, man, that's a really good point because you, you look at it like a Salesforce and like a MailChimp or, you know, Zapier is great. I mean, Zapier. For, yeah. Where they have like 1,500 applications that can connect together. And yeah. Being able to do that in the oil industry, I don't think we're that far off, to be honest with you. It's changing re- rapidly. You, you look at yeah. like some tech companies and they're like, oh, well, we can't, you know, we have, you know, 5% overlap with company B, you know, they're, they're a competitor of ours. And it's like, not necessarily, you know, right. you guys can still work together. You may have some overlapping features, but, you know, with API integrations, that that should be pretty seamless. I spent the last couple of years, like, traveling and visiting companies that, that we overlapped with to just say, look, guys, we need to collaborate and integrate and build integrations. We'll build them. And then convincing them we're not a competitor. I had one one partner that I don't, that I they said, "Why do you want to meet?" I said, "Because I'm going to convince you we're, I'm not a competitor." <laughs> <laughs> They're all and sketched the, out by. They're like, "Why do you want to meet with us?" <laughs> and the whole meeting was like me convince you know, and and now we have a really good relationship and a lot of trust. Awesome. Even though we have product overlap, yeah. right? And our and then what's happening is our customers are seeing incredible value and just are, are amazed by the integration, yeah. right? And I think the industry is going to do that, especially as there's more more SaaS companies that are coming up focused on APIs and integrations. Yep, absolutely. So you guys, obviously you're growing really fast right now. Are you guys pretty active in the Permian? Is that kind of your focus right now? We cover every basin from Canada to Vacamerta. Okay. Every U.S. basin, we have somewhere between, depending on how you want to count it, two and five wells in North America are collected and analyzed using our product. Okay. And so we see neighborhood of 400 plus or 20,000 stages of data collected and analyzed in our product every month. Wow. It's a lot of data. It's incredible. Big data. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Like that is the definition of big data. Yeah. uh, Man, I'm sure we could have. This is a nerdy tech question, but what database do you guys use in the back end? So we actually have a novel 
application of SQL. Okay. And so we've we've got a proprietary model that has been highly performant and worked really well for cool. us. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that was a nerdy question. Good question, Jake. I was just curious. How you, I mean, that's a lot of data. I was just curious how you're pulling all that. I'm happy I can answer it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. All right, man. So I always like asking, you know, what are what are your goals either, you know, for you personally or for the company for World Data Labs moving forward for the rest of 2019? What are you guys looking to do? Sounds like you're still growing fast on a hiring spree. Do you have any attainable goals that you're looking to get? At the moment, we're just trying to grow as fast as we can and solve problems for our customers in FRAC. We've got new products in the market for real-time frack and they have wrapped with apis and we actually have a new machine learning platform we've just released oh wow that will allow any any of our customers or their partners it was a lot of this has to do with partners to write distill their analysis or create data science models in r python they can now upload those into our platform and integrate them right with real-time frack or post-stage frack data so you can put awareness directly in front of the frack hand or your completions engineer. So the completions engineers don't have to write code, but the data scientist and the guy can deploy the models right to the front lines. out to them. Wow. It's incredible. We've been working on it for a while and it's in the market now. Awesome, man. I'm excited to see that. We'll have to, we'll have to get some insight on that when, when we come up to Denver. I want to see uh, what you guys are working on. But where can people find you if they're listening? What's y'all's website? www.welldaylabs.com. Easy yeah. enough. Easy enough. We're on LinkedIn. Okay. You can, you can find me, email, can I say my email? Yeah. Josh yeah, at sure. welldaylabs.com. <laughs> email me, man. I, Google me. Yeah. <laughs> Google me. I'm kind of a big deal. Just, uh, just look me up. Uh, you know, my, I'm reachable. I answer emails. I like to awesome. be connected. And right. But, you know, just reach out if there's a partner opportunity or, you know, you want to learn more about Welldale Labs. We just love to be part of the community. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put links in the show notes to all your, all your social channels and your email. So if you have questions for Josh or you want to get in contact with World Data Labs to hear more about them, just feel free to reach out. Anything else, Jake? That's it, man. That's it, man. Enjoy the conversation. Yeah, great like conversation. Coming on, Josh. Yeah, Appreciate yeah. you, man. Thanks, guys. Cool, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode. If you didn't know, you can also check out these episodes on YouTube. Just search Digital Walkheaders. Smash the subscribe button. If you're watching on YouTube now, thank you for watching. You can also listen to the podcast through any of your podcasting apps. If you'd like to take two seconds to leave us a rating review, go check out Josh at the website. Uh, connect with him on LinkedIn, spam his email, and we'll get, catch you guys in the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> come, 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 come.